And now first century Jews are trained because of their own tradition to know that whenever we have a story that begins, there was a man who has two sons, you go with the younger son. Mm. You go with Abel as opposed to Cain, with Isaac as opposed to Ishmael, with Jacob as opposed to Esau, and so on. And Jesus' parable is so shocking because it forces you to have sympathy for that older brother. Mm. And then how does the father pick up a child who was so disaffected that he doesn't even think his father loves him anymore? Mm. How do you bring that family back together? And because the parable is a third of a triptych, uh, a man who owns a hundred sheep loses one. A woman who owns 10 coins loses one. Then we know that when we get to there was a man who had two sons, that that father is going to lose probably both of his sons. And then mm. how does he regain them? And because they lose, the man loses his sheep. The woman loses his coin. I think the father loses the sons. I don't think the father is God. I'm a- podcast. My name is Glenn. Uh, This is episode number 93. And it's actually an episode that's part of two different series. So it's part five of our Easter series, Deconstructing Easter. Uh, But it's also part 10 of our series, Women's Voices You Need to Hear. Because today we're talking to Dr. Amy Jill Levine, who is a wonderful uh, wealth of knowledge in this woman about uh, Jesus Uh, the faith of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Uh, She's a Jewish scholar, theologian, professor, so many different things. And uh, this is a a wonderful conversation. She's going to bring us all the way back to the dusty streets that Jesus walked. And she's going to tell us all about Passion Week. She's going to talk to us about one of the key teachings of Jesus. Uh, So many different things. And I got to tell you up front, I was nervous. I don't get super nervous for a lot of the episodes. Uh, but Amy Jo Levine is somebody whose books um, I I have found very helpful in my own spiritual life. Uh, she's uh, an editor of the Jewish Annotated Bible, which I, or New Testament, which I have on my shelf. Uh, she has a really great book that she wrote about the parables of Jesus, short stories by Jesus, uh, whole lots of other writings. And when I hit play, when I hit record, I was like, I don't know, I felt like I was going to throw up, you know, and I felt like really nervous for some reason. And my mind kept getting super distracted in the conversation, uh, but she was very gracious to me. And um, I think she did a fantastic job of answering my questions, dealing with my questions. And I emailed her later on because I was like, man, I, I emailed her. I'm like, just so you know, like I was super nervous. She's like, oh, we did. We had a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. We'll do it again sometime, sometime soon. So uh, Amy Jill Levine, get ready for this conversation. Lots of fun. Uh, I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, real quick, patreon.com slash whatifproject, a place where you can go to support the show. Uh, link to that is in the show notes. What If Project community, also in the show notes. It's a closed Facebook group where you can go to find people who are evolving and growing in their faith, just like maybe you are. Uh, you can have honest conversations in there, express your questions, your doubts, 
Uh, there's no shame, no judgment. Uh, everybody in there gets along, and we're all just one big happy family. Uh, what if Project Heretic Shop is a place where you can go to buy some uh, some merch, some What If Project swag, hoodies, t-shirts, jackets, backpacks, stickers, mugs, pillows, blankets, all sorts of different things are in there. So uh, go check that out as well. Link is in the show notes. You can go to whatifproject.net, click on store, and um, it will bring you right there. Special music for this whole series has been from my friend Derek Webb. If you don't know him, Google him. Uh, his name will pop up right away. Um, he's doing great things in the world, making some great music. All this music is off his newest album called Targets. Um, the lyrics are deep. They're thought-provoking. Uh, so go check it out. Listen, share, uh, pass it along. His name is Derek Webb. All of that to say, thank you. Thank you for joining me for this series. It has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, this is part five of our Easter series, Deconstructing Easter. It's part number 10 uh, of our series, Women's Voices You Need to Hear. And it's my conversation with Amy Jill Levine. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. It is great to have you here. Uh, today we are joined by my friend AJ Levine, who is a professor, uh, author, and New Testament scholar. So uh, AJ, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Happy to be with you. Thank you. So I first heard about your work uh, when I was doing some research on parables back in seminary, and I came across your book, uh, Short Stories by Jesus, also the work you did in the Jewish annotated uh, New Testament, both of which... I am proud to say that I own on my bookshelf, and uh, I just wanted to begin by saying thank you. Uh, thank you for your work uh, taking us deeper into the historical Christ. You're welcome. I think uh, your work, thinking about it today, I think it really resonates with me because I'm at this place, and I mentioned this before we hit record, where I'm really tired of the uh, American Jesus. I don't even know if I really know exactly everything that I mean by that, but sometimes it feels like in America, we've almost, I don't know, like domesticated him, maybe, and it's like we've stripped him of his Jewishness. We've painted him white. We've placed him in front of our mega churches and he tells us how successful he wants us to be. And I don't know, I'm just getting exhausted of that message. <laughs> and in all, the in all the pictures, it looks like he's just come out of a shampoo commercial. It does. He looks like that uh, old, old Spice guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, for, even for my students, many of whom are planning on going into in some form of Christian clergy, um, it, Jesus has lost his edginess. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, the good thing is they feel that they can trust him and that he understands their suffering, uh, but they don't find as much ethical compulsion in his statements. Um, they don't realize where he is distinct in his, in his own community and where he's basically saying what other Jews have always said. Mm. Um, and they typically construct him in their own image rather than encounter him in his image and then mm. have a conversation. Mm. I guess it's easy, 
easier to do that to make God and Jesus into our own image than it is to try to figure out what he meant in the scriptures. The weird thing is he tells us that some of this takes work, Mm. right? Um, you know, he tells us that the parables are difficult to understand. He keeps saying to the disciples, oh, you have little understanding. You know, like, pay attention. Um, mm. And I don't think that people today pay enough attention. Um, we, So many Christians have heard these words since they were kids, and the words no longer have any meaning. Um, they're just rote. Mm. Uh, if we do the history, then they really take on new meaning and interesting meaning, ethical and challenging and uh, interesting. Yeah. I find that it is very hard work, like you said, because for me, being raised in an evangelical world, like I, I've pastored churches, I've been to seminary, and I have that message so ingrained in my mind. And when I come across, like especially some of your work, like I had to read some of this stuff in short stories by Jesus a hundred times because I was like, I just don't understand what this lady's saying, <laughs> you know. And it just it was so hard to like kind of unwrap my mind around things that I was already wrapped around to see it in a different light. I thought I was pretty clear, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was very clear, but I guess when you have it ingrained in your head, uh, you got you to gotta do a little bit of work, like you said. But before we jump into some questions, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, who are you? What do you do? What makes, what makes you tick? Uh, you know, I, I'm, and I'm increasingly aging. Um, a Jewish woman born in Massachusetts who lives in Tennessee, hmm. um, who goes to an Orthodox synagogue and who teaches Christian ministers how to proclaim the gospel. And you do a lot of work in the churches, from what I understand. Yeah, consistently. Um, how, how often are you in churches? Um, hmm, probably about every week and a half or so. Um, okay. And there have been some semesters where it's been every week because I've had either local or um, uh, out-of-town programs. So I, I talk in churches. Um, I spent last semester, um, two semesters ago, so a year ago, spring, spring 2019, uh, teaching at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. Hmm. Um, working with 41 Catholic priests and deacons, and that was great fun. Um, So I work with Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholic Christians, Anglicans, uh, Protestants across the spectrum, um, liberal as well as evangelical. I occasionally get invited to churches of Christ and Baptist churches and universities. Hmm. Um, And and I think the reason I can do all this is because I'm not interested in uh, challenging Christian doctrine. Um, mm-hmm. If a Christian wants to proclaim the Trinity or proclaim Jesus as Lord or proclaim a virginal conception or Jesus' resurrection from the dead, all that stuff stays in place. Um, what I'm interested in doing is taking a step back from all those doctrines to try to listen to Jesus as a first century Jew talking to other Jews and thereby seeing if we can recover some of the, some of the provo- provocation of his message, which has simply gotten lost over 2,000 years of, of Christian varnish. Mm. So it's like you're not trying to tell people that their doctrines are wrong, but helping them maybe see Jesus as he was that sometimes gets covered up by those doctrines. I think he's interesting and provocative and inspirational, and I'm not even a Christian. How much mm. more so should Christians be able to recover all that provocation and inspiration uh, if they simply knew something about the historical context in which he lived? Mm. Now, did you grow up like regular in the temple? that part of your life growing up? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Hebrew school twice a week, services uh, Friday evening and Saturday morning, and three hours of Sunday school. Hmm. Now, I heard you say, I think it was on Pete Enz's podcast, that I think he had made a reference and said that you're an a atheist Jew, and you, you kind of pushed back on that a little bit. But you can talk about maybe a little bit about where you are in your own faith. Um, I'm not a believer. If by believer we mean 
I have a palpable sense of an external supernatural presence that's benevolent that watches over me. I, I've never felt that. Um, atheists might be a little strong uh, yeah. because I don't go around saying there's no God. Um, I, I don't find one to be personally in my own life, but that mm. doesn't that God doesn't exist. I just don't feel it. Um, and nor do I feel an absence. Um, so that when my friends who are believers in whatever tradition, whether they're Muslim or Christians or Jews or Hindus or Buddhists for that matter, um, it, it works for them. And I'm, I'm delighted that it works for them. Uh, for me, I find meaning elsewhere and not in, in a kind of uh, theological, supernatural God sitting up on a throne manner. How, do, how does that jive with um, like maybe like the Jews in your life? Like, does that, is that something that people tend to understand people that you grew up with? Or is it something that has that rocked anybody's boat at all? I don't think so. No? Uh, well, certainly not among Jews. Um, <laughs> you know, Jews are not Jews because we have a particular belief system. Jews are mm. Jews because we are a people. Uh, it's, it's kind of like being an American. I mean, you can be an American and have a variety of different belief systems about, say, the current presidency or the Supreme Court or foreign policy. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're all still Americans. Jews can have a variety of different theological beliefs or no theological belief. Mm. But the day we're still Jews. So in that sense, the question of orthodoxy, the question of, of a particular set of doctrines is less important in Judaism than it is in Christianity. Yeah, I guess I'm asking that because of my experience in Christianity, that when you begin to think differently, uh, you are no longer like part of the family. And so I think it's very, very, very different from Judaism. <laughs> well, there's an old joke that says, if you have two Jews in a room, you'll have three opinions. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what, what, we, what we in the community have managed to do pretty well um, is hold what, what the rabbinic tradition calls um, arguments for the sake of heaven, because um, mm. there's stuff that's worth talking about. And when we look at our own scripture, I mean, not only the, the biblical materials that Jews and Christians share, but when we look at our Mishnah, the Talmud, medieval Jewish commentary, um, it, we read a, a conversation where we have both majority and minority opinions preserved. Uh, we have rabbis disagreeing with each other in their own setting and across time. Mm -hmm. And our job is not simply to, to agree with what everybody has said before, but to enter into that conversation, that stream of, of uh, tradition going on for more than two millennia and say, what is our take on this particular text or this particular practice? Mm. So the point is you don't have to agree in order to live civilly with each other when you compromise and when you don't. I like that. I think the, I think the Christian church could learn a thing or two from, from that for sure. Uh, this episode is going to drop probably around uh, Easter time. So I thought I would kind of ask you a couple of questions concerning uh, Jesus, one in regards to his death and then one in regards to one of his more uh, famous teachings. But the first thing I want to ask you is why was it, why was he crucified? And I asked that because, Although some might think it's an easy answer, I'm kind of discovering in my own spiritual journey that it's a little bit uh, maybe more in depth than what I've, I've been taught growing up. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up in an evangelical world, that narrative that God is really mad you know, at my sin. And so instead of punishing me, he punished Jesus so I can go to heaven. Uh, so essentially, like God killed Jesus. And then you have other people that say, well, the Jews are responsible. And then other people say the empire is responsible in Rome. Then you have people that say, well, it's a mix of all of all three. So I was wondering if you take us back a little bit to the time of Jesus, uh, those dusty streets, help us understand what was going on in that world, especially maybe in that week leading up to his uh, crucifixion that we might not uh, get on a surface level reading of the, of the text. 
Um, well, the streets are not only dusty, they're also extraordinarily crowded. Mm. Because it's Passover time and Passover is a pilgrimage festival. So you've got Jews coming from, from all over the Roman Empire and, and places outside the empire. Uh, because the tradition at the time was for Passover, in order to eat the Paschal lamb, the, pas the lambs that are sacrificed for Passover, you have to do so within the city environs of Jerusalem. So the mm. place is packed. And at this point, for pilgrimage festivals, Pilate, who's the, the Roman governor, he's, he's the ruler, Roman rule in Judea, brings his troops uh, from out, by, out in Caesarea into Jerusalem, uh, as if to say to the Jewish population, hey, get, it's Rome who's running your country. Mm. Uh, so whatever you do, we've got our eye on you, and you better make sure your taxes come in, and you better make sure you do not revolt. Mm. Um, so the place is a powder cake. Passover is the festival of freedom where where Jews are no longer enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, but are celebrating freedom, and suddenly you have all these Romans there. And that would have been probably more shocking for people coming in, say, from Galilee, because there aren't Roman soldiers stationed in Galilee. Galilee's under a Jewish king, um, a Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. So suddenly some of these folks are seeing Roman soldiers for the first time, and they're angry, and they're upset. Um, and then suddenly comes into town this fellow who is being hailed by his followers as a savior or as God's anointed, which is what uh, anointed is what Christ means. Mm. Um, and the place is a powder keg. The last thing anybody who's in charge of keeping the peace needs is a fellow coming into the city who's being acclaimed a Messiah. Mm. Um, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Jesus dies on a Roman cross. Um, who gets the best... Um, uh, the best benefit from his death, Pontius Pilate does. Uh, because Pilate, representing Rome, puts, according to the Gospels, puts this titulus, which is the sign on the cross, um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that's Roman advertising as if to say, you think this guy is your king? Here's what we, the Romans, do to anybody who claims to be a king. Um, who else was involved? Well, I've been working uh, in, in Nashville in a maximum security prison for close to 25 years. Um, and we in Tennessee, we still kill people. Uh, and when I think about who's responsible for the deaths of individuals whom Tennessee puts to death, well, in part, we all are, mm. because we are responsible for the people we put into office. Um, we are responsible for allowing those executions to go through, because if, if we, the general population, had the courage to storm the prison and stop it, we probably could. Mm. And we do not. Mm. Um, so in that sense, there's a more general concern here. Um, theologically speaking, for the general Christian tradition, and this is starting from Paul, it is God who hands over, who hands Jesus over to be crucified. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that one has to take that out of like a really angry God who, who, who wants to torture his child. Mm. Um, to read that same theological tradition as a God of love who gives up that which is most precious to him um, in order to fight evil. Um, it, not dissimilar to a parent um, uh, who sends a child off to battle, knowing that that child may be killed, um, in effect, taking up the cross, mm. uh, to a parent who allows the child to do this for the greater good. Mm. Um, so I don't think you need to have a really angry God along these lines. Plus, Jesus goes willingly. So part of the responsibility for who killed Jesus is if Jesus wanted to flee, he could have done so. He does not. Mm. So the, all, the whole issue of who killed Jesus is 
probably not even the right question. The better question is, why does he die? Mm. And the answer to that is going to depend upon who is giving the answer. Theologians will respond differently than uh, historians, uh, than the gospel writers who give multiple reasons for why he dies. Does he die as a ransom, Matthew and Mark? Does he die as a sacrifice, the epistle to the Hebrews? Does he die to show human sin, later church tradition, and so on? Which means that any Christian dealing with the gospel texts and dealing with the crucifixion will have to determine how am I as an individual to understand Jesus' death and what does that death say to me and mean for me? Hmm. And I find that that's a, it seems to go back to that idea that you said when you have, you know, two Jews in a room, you have three opinions and I, or three beliefs or three, you know, whatever. But I feel like in the church, especially in where I was raised, like that mentality when it comes to especially the death of Christ is just not welcomed at all. And I feel like it's, you have to have one, it's one thing, it means this, it means nothing else. And that's just the way that it is, deal with it. Yeah. Um, that, that's a sign of not reading the Gospels or Paul very closely. Mm. Uh, the New Testament itself gives us multiple perspectives on the crucifixion. So why a church would settle on just one seems to me to be to sell the canon of the New Testament short. Mm. When, did, when, did the, um, when did it the church kind of, do you think, narrow, narrow down the, the reason for Jesus' death to be kind of like a singular meaning? Like when, when in history did it... Trying to, trying to think of a way to word my question about when, when in history did it not did other ideas not become welcome? Is I guess what I'm asking. Um, it depends upon the church that you're talking about because there has mm. never been, as as the saying goes, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Yeah, uh, you know, and you can see that already in the New Testament. What's going on in Corinth is not what's going on in Philippi. Is not what's going on in Thessalonica. Is not what's going on in Ephesus. Let alone what's going on in Jerusalem. Mm. Um, so you know, Catholics and Protestants have their particular views one way or the other. Uh, but those views actually develop over time. Religion is not static, nor should it be, mm. um, because otherwise we'd all be playing first century Bible land. Yeah. Um, and the reason we have all these different Protestant churches um, is because these churches simply did not agree on fundamentals of what the text meant and how, how people should act if they were to call themselves Christians. I mean, the church has never been in agreement on that. Um, I think if Christians took their baptism more seriously, they would be able to disagree better um, rather than, you know, every two years having to found a new denomination or having to <laughs> right. you know, talk to each other. Yeah. I think too, like for me, like thinking about my own faith and my own kind of the way it's evolved, I, I see that, like I see there was a time in my life where, you know, the, the sacrifice of Jesus made a lot of sense to me. And there were times in my life where the, the ransom piece made sense to me. And I'm in this place where I really feel like his death magnified human sin, but also magnified the divine's response to human sin in terms of forgiveness and love and grace and like all these different things. I feel like my own faith has evolved, but brought all these different elements in um, at the same time. So I think it's important to kind of give people that sense of freedom, I guess, to um, evolve over time. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, in the same way that I don't feel a palpable sense of the supernatural presence of God, um, I also don't feel a personal palpable sense of, of moral depravity. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think of myself generally as this kind of worm that has, that has <laughs> no, no value in and of itself. And that's probably insulting to worms. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think human beings are, we're gloriously made and we, and we can do wonderful things. I mean, we can also do appalling things. 
Um, but I don't have this sense of complete depravity such that I feel the need for somebody to offer a, a life on my behalf. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I appreciate um, the tradition of martyrdom for those who die for sanctification of the name. Uh, uh, those who are willing to give up their lives because, um, because there, there is something that's worth dying for. Mm. Um, and by this, I don't mean you put on a suicide vest and you take a lot of people out with you. Um, but we have within the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition a strong sense of martyrdom. Um, I, I understand that too, and I can understand Jesus' death as a martyrdom. He's dying for that in which he believes uh, the one God, uh, justice as opposed to power over, um, a sense of the, the human family um, rather than people going off into their own little silos, a sense that we, we are all children of God um, as opposed to some and not others. Um, so when we go back and we look at the history, we can say, what exactly is it for which he dies? And we may get various answers depending upon whether we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, or Hebrews, hmm. or like whether that. we look to our own selves and say, how do I understand the cross today? Right. How do I understand why somebody died? Hmm. So talking a little bit about why, when pastors say, I, I know I've been guilty of this in the past, when pastors make, make a reference to you know, Jews being the primary ones responsible for his death. What, what kind of, in your opinion, like what kind of damage does that do? Well, if you read the New Testament carefully, as you go from Mark to Matthew to Luke to John, the vilification of Jews increases. Hmm. Um, so that by the time you get to John, the high priest has basically backed Pilate into a corner and said, you know, you have to kill him because otherwise you're going to be in trouble. Hmm. Um, uh, in First uh, Thessalonians, which is probably our earliest New Testament document, Paul talks about the Eudioid, the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. Um, so from pretty early on, Jews have been getting the rap on this. Um, what does it do? Um, in, in 1965, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, during something called Vatican II, this big synod, uh, announced that Jews at all times and all places cannot be held responsible for the death of Jesus. In other words, otherwise put, I wasn't there. I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, that, and that actually creates a sea change um, in terms of how Catholics and Jews looked at each other. Um, mm. So Jews are no longer demonized in this kind of supernatural, horrible sense. It's like they killed God. Uh, and the only thing you would do in a circumstance like that is, well, they killed God, let's go kill them. Uh, and uh, we've seen what happens when people think, let's go kill the Jews. We are kind of like the canary in, in, in the cavern. Um, it's a horrible thing to say, mm. but it's also in the New Testament. And that's why we need theologians um, to say, here's what the text, here's what the words of the text may be saying, but here's how we understand that text. Because all texts require interpretation, and even the staunchest literalist really isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't know of any literalists who, you know, whose hands have offended them, and therefore they're lopping them off. And I'm pretty sure those hands have offended at one time or another. Right. Um, you know, or whose eyes have offended, and therefore they're poking their eyes. Oh, they're not doing that. Um, I don't know that many Christians who are giving to anybody who begs from them, although Jesus says that's what you ought to do. Mm. Um, so we're always trying to find an interpretation that works for us, that can, that can move us toward greater ethical accountability and greater spiritual knowledge and appreciation, but at the same time, something that's livable. Mm. I don't think it's livable to look at a particular group of people and condemn them uh, for a particular death. Um, if we take a theological view on the death of Jesus, the answer to who killed Jesus is everybody did. Mm. 
everybody is involved. His followers are involved. Judas Iscariot had a hand in this. Uh, his followers are involved because they didn't stop it, and they could have at Gethsemane. Um, Pilate's clearly involved. His soldiers are involved because it's not just the general who gives the orders, it's the soldiers who carry them out. Hmm. Um, uh, the people who were in Jerusalem at the time were involved because if they had wanted to go into revolt, they could have done so, and they do so about 40 years later. God is involved in Jesus' involved. Everybody's involved. So it's not just, can't just pin it on one party. Well, I don't think it's helpful to exculpate everybody else. Yeah. Um, and it is not the job to confess, it is not the job of the church to confess the sins of the Jews. It is the job of the Christian to confess his or her own sins. Amen to that. Wow. So what I want to do now is I want to ask you a little bit about one of his, um, one of Jesus's teachings. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the, the parable of the prodigal son? Because that's one that tends to come up, at least in my, my upbringing, right around the time of, of Easter, one of the more well-known stories. But um, can you give us some of that context maybe in which Jesus lived as to what this uh, parable might have meant for those people, uh, what it might mean for us today, bringing it forward? Um, again, because I've seen, I've heard different interpretations of this, and I'm just wondering, given the context of Jesus's world, uh, how you would, how you would uh, interpret it. Well, I mean, I, I think this parable is so incredibly meaningful and also so incredibly dumbed down. Hmm. Uh, I actually wrote a children's book about it, <laughs> as well as included a chapter in, in, my, in, in my parables book that you referenced. Um, Jesus told parables apparently on multiple occasions because we get the same parable showing up in different settings in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This parable is only in, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and I think when he went around from town to town, people would say, you know, tell us the one about the, the dad with the two sons, or right. tell us the one about the guy who got attacked by robbers on the Jerusalem to Jericho Road. Um, by the time we get the parables in the Gospels, the Gospel writers have to figure out uh, where am I going to have Jesus tell this parable? And the gospel writers, uh, who are themselves creative ministers or evangelists, um, will sometimes come in and explain what the parables mean. Hmm. According to Mark, back in Mark chapter 4, um, we find out that Jesus told the parables to the crowds and then provided his disciples the explanations. But if you look at the disciples in Mark, who are not the brightest students in the seminar, they're so clueless, they don't know a metaphor if it hits them over the head, <laughs> uh, which is why most of the parables come to us without explanation. Hmm. For the prodigal son, Luke sets up the prodigal, we're in Luke chapter 15 here, as the third of three parables, the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And after the first two parables, I think it's Luke coming in and saying, here's after the first one, therefore I tell you there is more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than over 99 who are righteous. Mm -hmm. And after the parable of the lost coin, you know, the angels rejoice when a sinner repents. So Luke is reading the prodigal as about a repentant sinner. And that's why we call it the parable of the prodigal son, because we look at the prodigal as the repentant sinner. We look at the dad in the parable as God. And then the general teaching is this wonderful, merciful father God welcomes back this very, very sinful son uh, without the son having even to get out his full apology. And that's a sign of the graciousness of God. Hmm. And then we read the older brother in the parable, who sometimes, to call it the prodigal son, the older brother's already written out of the story, as representing the Pharisees or the Jews who are not happy about repentance. And what could be more stupid? Of course Jews are happy when people repent. Mm -hmm. It's part of the system. Right. Um, so for my guys at Riverbend, um, who, this is the prison, who, who will sometimes identify with the prodigal, 
um, and they need to see God the Father in the Father in the parable, and they need to see that Father God is welcoming them no matter what they did. Hmm. Great reading, and I don't want to take them that reading away from them, and I think that's the reading that Luke is leading us toward. But I think if you strip the prodigal out of its Luke in context, that's not the message you would get. Luke, by the way, loves forgiveness. Luke keeps adding in forgiveness material where Matthew and Mark don't have them. So that's all mm. Luke. Um, it, I think the parables, um, it, parables have something, and Jewish storytelling has this as well, called end, end stress, where the, the climax, the meat of the parable comes at the end. But mm. the prodigal son is welcome to the fatted calf buffet midway through the parable. And the kicker in the parable is the next verse. Um, and I'm just paraphrasing here because I don't have the Bible open in front of me. Sure. Something like, um, uh, when the older brother heard the, the noise of music and dancing, he calls a slave to ask what's going on. And the slave says, oh, your brother's come back safe and sound and your father killed the fatted calf. And the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. Um, in other words, the parable begins, there was a man who had two sons and this father had enough time to set up the dinner and to call the musicians and to invite the neighbors. And he forgot to invite his older son who never got the news that his brother had returned. Hmm. So what happens is um, first century Jews, I think, would have, would have been thinking about this older brother. And now first century Jews are trained because of their own tradition to know that whenever we have a story that begins, there was a man who has two sons, you go with the younger son. Mm. You go with Abel as opposed to Cain, with Isaac as opposed to Ishmael, with Jacob as opposed to Esau, and so on. And Jesus' parable is so shocking because it forces you to have sympathy for that older brother. Mm. And then how does the father pick up a child who was so disaffected that he doesn't even think his father loves him anymore? Mm. How do you bring that family back together? And because the parable is a third of a triptych, uh, a man who owns a hundred sheep loses one. A woman who owns 10 coins loses one. Then we know that when we get to there was a man who had two sons, that that father is going to lose probably both of his sons. And then mm. how does he regain them? And because they lose, the man loses his sheep. The woman loses his coin. I think the father loses the sons. I don't think the father is God, not on first reading. I think mm. the father is us. And it asks whom have we failed to count? Whom have we made to feel uncounted or discounted? And how do we bring back all those older brothers, the Cains and the Esau's and the Ishmael's and the other folks we've written out of our family? Because they're part of the family too. Mm. Wow. So it's almost like by magnifying the older brother at the very end of those, those strings of parables, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, have compassion on the one that you would normally not have compassion on yeah or saying pay attention to the people who are right under your noses who have been doing everything right uh as opposed to the the prodigal son who left and then came back hmm. uh, or uh pay attention to your own children the one who does everything right as opposed to the one who sucks all the air out of the room hmm. um uh and pretty much everybody knows what it's like to be part of a family or in my case part of the classroom where the kids who were difficult, the individuals who were difficult, get the most attention. Yeah. How do you make sure that if you're in the family, that everybody knows they are loved? 
Jesus has something that's, that's inspirational, and the message is more than God loves you even if you screw up big time. Jews already knew that. Golden calf, not one of our better moments, right? We know that God is faithful. We got that. <laughs> right. What we need, what everybody needs, is kind of a re- revival on ethics, hmm. basic human behavior, including not overlooking the people we are inclined to overlook. Hmm. And those basic human ethics, I mean, that's, that's what Jesus came. Those are the primary things of his teaching, right? I mean, Sermon on the Mount and all those different things were about how to, how to live as a human being. So it would make sense that his parables were teaching us that as well. Right. And parables yeah. as genre are they're actually very similar to Aesop's fables. Hmm. Uh, they're similar to parables that we find in the scriptures of Israel, what the church would call the Old Testament, the synagogue would call the Tanakh. Uh, and there are tons of parables in rabbinic literature, and some of them are theological, but a lot of them are how we get along with our neighbors or members mm. of our family or the people who live across the road. They, they indict. If we yeah. hear a parable and we think that's so sweet and that's so nice and I'm really comforted, we're probably miscuing the genre. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed that when a lot of the parables, we like to come to a nice, happy little ending and make us feel good when we walk out the door of church. But I think when you take a deeper reading at them like you just showed us i think it it brings a lot of conviction yeah well it also makes jesus a whole lot more interesting yeah and a whole lot more radical like you said in the beginning in, in a case like, i don't think he's being radical i think he's just being a really really splendid storyteller yeah with parables um kind of one of the questions i had is is, is there is it okay to have multiple meanings for parables especially like as time goes on like we might have a different meaning or interpretation of a parable now than maybe we had 30 years ago, given the context of whether it's our personal families or just the state of our world or our country, whatever, like, are there constantly, like, do Jewish people see new meanings coming to parables all throughout history? Or is it just something that, and, and again, that's probably coming from my, my seminary background, because it's just always being taught, you've got to find the one meaning of the text. But, you know, I've, I've been hammered on Facebook a couple of times for coming at like a parable at a different angle. I asked not really what it means. I'm just curious, you know, what is your estimation of that? Oh my goodness. Well, even in a seminary, if in a seminary, if somebody assigns you to write a paper on a parable, um, they're not expecting everybody in the class to come up with exactly the same paper. That would be a waste of everybody's time. Mm. Uh, so already they're saying, what's your particular take on it? Or how do you understand what everybody else has said? As soon as Jesus tells a parable, that's open to multiple interpretation. Um, in Jewish interpretation, the rabbis say when looking at a text of scripture, give me another interpretation. Give me another reading. What do you see in it? How do you enter that stream of interpretation? Um, it, it, there's always going to be new meaning. And if we simply cl- close it down, um, we're, we're eliminating human imagination. Uh, from a theological perspective, we're eliminating inspiration. Um, we're also usually being quite totalitarian in terms of our own concern. You know, I'm a white male Protestant with a European background. I can tell you what it means. And if you happen to come from another tradition or another place on the globe, clearly you're wrong. Um, so it's an, it, that singular meaning is really quite imperialistic. Hmm. So it's okay to have multiple, multiple meanings and multiple viewpoints. Um, I would celebrate them. Uh, yeah. Not it's, 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 the question is not is it okay. The, the issue is it's inevitable. Hmm.
right? Um, and, and there's no reason why these teachings teaching should have a singular meaning because Jesus is not a cookie cutter sort of person. Mm. He meets people where they are. Some people, he says, sell all you have and give to the poor and you come follow me. Uh, Mary and Martha, he's very happy they keep their own house and they can, and they can show some hospitality. Mm. Um, not everybody is called to exactly the same role. And not everybody has the same talents, to use another par- parabolic image. Hmm. Um, so if he's not cookie cutter and he can meet people in different locations and God created us all in our remarkable diversity, why should there only be one meaning to a text? Hmm. And that's really what Jesus did too with the, uh, with the laws, right? I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, when he said that the two greatest commandments are to love God and love other people, like that was a, uh, a conversation that had been going on for, for quite some time. Right. And he just kind of gave his estimate, his opinion on it. Yeah. And he, and he wasn't the only Jew who came up with those two put together. Hmm. Uh, we find them put together in other texts and in the gospel of Luke, it's actually a lawyer who puts the two texts together, not Jesus. Hmm. Um, that's the run up to the parable of the good Samaritan. Um, so that when he puts those two things together, we're in Mark 12 now, you know, and, and the scribe says to him, yeah, really good answer. It is a really good answer. Right. <laughs> Other Jews would have said uh, the righteous will live by faith. Um, and, and you can find that not only it's a quotation from Habakkuk, you can find it not only in Paul, uh, but you can find it in rabbinic literature. Um, mm-hmm. So the rabbis actually played games, you know, can you get it down to 10? Can you get it down to five? Can you get it down to three? Can you get it down to one? Right. Um, this is what Jews do. Um, so you figure what are the more weighty commandments and what are the less weighty commandments? What's the touchstone? And what are the ones that you can adapt depending upon particular circumstances? Mm. You honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. On the other hand, um, if it's a matter of saving a life, you violate every single Sabbath law there is. Mm. That makes perfect sense in a Jewish context. Mm. Talk for a minute uh, before I let you go to the person who maybe is uh, kind of like myself stepping out of that evangelical world and they're trying to discover the historical Jesus. They're getting kind of tired of the Jesus they've been taught about growing up and they're looking for more. What, what kind of advice do you have for that, for that person? Where should they, where should they look? What should they be reading? What should they be doing? <laughs> um, it, it seems to me if one claims to love Jesus, um, it, one would want to know everything there is to know about him. And that yeah. requires knowing something about when and where he lived. Hmm. Um, to understand the New Testament requires understanding not only the contents of what the church would call the Old Testament, uh, but also how Jews at the time of Jesus were interpreting it. Because you can't just look at Leviticus and say that's what Jews are doing in the first century, let alone the 21st century. Hmm. Um, If you can locate Jesus more firmly within his own historical context, and you look at the Jewish sources to help you do that, um, then you get better purchase on what Jesus might have sounded like to the people who first heard him. Mm. Um, again, that does not take away any theological concerns. You can still claim him as dying for your sins or being raised from the dead or being your advocate in the heavenly court. All that stuff stays in place and all that stuff is beautiful. Um, but if you want more, do the history mm. and allow yourself to be challenged by it. Um, rather than continuing to construct Jesus in, in, in one's own image, have a conversation with the history and figure out where you agree and where you disagree. And I suspect that Jesus, good first century Jew that he was, um, would have said something like, you disagree with me on this? Fine, let's have a conversation. Hmm. It wouldn't be like the end of the road. Well, that's, that's the story of Jesus and the Canaanite lady. They had a conversation. What kind of, uh, where would you point people to look for those kind of things? Is there any 
kind of accessible resource that you would recommend? Um, there's, there's tons of stuff out there. Um, you know, it, 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 it may sound lack of modesty, but I think I do a pretty good job. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they can look at the stuff that I'm writing. Um, the material that Abingdon Press has put out, uh, three, three adult series, and we're right now doing a fourth on the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is designed for church-based curricula. Mm. Um, how to understand the passion narrative, how to understand the advent narrative, how to understand the parables. Um, you mentioned the Jewish Annotated New Testament, second edition, 2017. Um, it's, it's a quick reference if you want to know how a particular verse would have been understood in, in that time period, that text will give it to you. And what we do in the Jewish Annotated is when we know that sermons and Bible studies go wrong because of unfortunate and incorrect stereotyping, we pull out little gray boxes saying, don't go here, go there. Mm. So that way you get this, um, if I can use this term, prophylactic, you get this, mm. this guard um, over against bad readings. Yeah. That's really helpful because I've, I've seen that in that, in that Bible and it's been helpful because my mind automatically wants to go to what's in that, in that gray box, but then you kind of point us in a different direction. Think about this. If you have to make Jesus look bad, if you have to make Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus look good, something has gone wrong. Jesus yeah. looks fabulous on his own. Yeah. And I, as a non-Christian, think he thinks he looks fabulous without having to create a negative context. Um, then I think Christians should be able to do that as well. Amen to that. Well, AJ, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you for, for joining me. And before you go, where can people find you online? Um, well, I don't have a blog because I teach full time. <laughs> <laughs> you talk enough, right? <laughs> I, don't have the time. Um, I do have a Facebook page, which I've never seen because I don't know how it works. Uh, but my daughter checks in about once a week and lets me know if there's anything to which I need to respond. <laughs> um, but you can certainly find works that, that I do, including works that are designed for crossover audiences just on Amazon. Easiest way to find me. Perfect. Well, I'll put the links to those in the show notes. And uh, thank you again so much for taking the time for me. What a pleasure to talk with you. I now have to go write a lecture. Oh, thank you, AJ. Take care, Glenn. Bye-bye. Bye.
Sim.